think there were some regulations for public companies that came out a few years ago that focused on adding at least one woman to each board. And back in 2018, um, around the time that these regulations were coming out, we decided to uh, launch the first public company that had an all-woman board. So we wanted to show people that it's not only possible to find one qualified woman to be on your board, but you can actually put together an entire board full of females, and, and it's not that hard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Amanda Abrams, CEO of FinTech Masala, a FinTech-focused investment platform and one of the pioneers and most active firms behind several FinTech SPACs since 2015. Some of their SPAC transactions include CarConnect, Payoneer, Paya, and Perella Weinberg Partners. If filing 12 SPACs gets you the title of SPAC King, then Amanda and Fintech Masala co-founder Betsy Cohen are definitely the SPAC queens with a total of 11 SPACs filed. In this episode, we discuss the SPAC process, how it differs from IPOs, and why Amanda suggests company CEOs should still consider this route, the SPAC boom of 2020 and 2021, what drove this mania and some of the mistakes that were made, key differences between a good SPAC process versus a bad one, and how do you know if a company is ready to go public, lessons learned from years working with dozens of CEOs and boards, the future of fintech, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Amanda from Fintech Masala. Amanda, welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast. Uh, thrilled to, to welcome you and thrilled to have you uh, joining us for a very, very special episode. How are you doing today? I am great. How are you, Miguel? I am very good. It's, uh, it's, we're recording this on a Friday, so I'm, I'm ready to kind of <laughs> shut down for, for the day and, and not too long and enjoy the weekend. But uh, I, I'm excited to kind of learn about your story and learn about FinTech Masala and, and all the interesting things that you guys are doing. Maybe we can start by just hearing a bit about your, your background and, and your story. Sure. Um, so I spent the, the first part of my career actually as a transactional attorney. I was focused on M&A and capital markets transactions. I had worked with the founders of Fintech Masala, the, the company of which I'm CEO currently, on Fintech Masala's first SPAC transaction as their counsel. So we acquired a, a payments company called Card Connect. And shortly after that acquisition closed, I actually switched sides and left to join the management team over at Card Connect. Uh, it was my shortest lived job. A day after I started, Card Connect had required an offer to be acquired by another public company. At that time, I'd probably been a lawyer for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years, and it really gave me the motivation to step back and think about 
what I wanted out of my professional life and my career. And at that point, I was really ready for something different, more entrepreneurial, to be on the principal side of all of these transactions that I had worked on as an attorney. Uh, so I had joined at that time Fintech Masala in its pretty much earliest years to work with our founders to build out the platform. I, I started as the GC and COO and eventually moved on to being the CEO of the company. And well, here I am. Some some of the best entrepreneurs are former lawyers. It seems to be a, a great track to do interesting things, but but also, uh, you know, it, not everyone, not every lawyer has a personality to to move on. <laughs> yes, that is that is definitely true. <laughs> uh, so, tell us a bit about uh, fintech masala. You you've been doing. SPACs before it was cool. <laughs> you know? it, it uh, is, yes, that's one way to put it. Uh, <laughs> Fintech Masala, we are an investment platform. We're, we were founded by Betsy and Daniel Cohen. They are a, a mother-son team that in the late 90s, they really pioneered the Fintech sponsor banking model. Uh, the platform is really built around years of our team's understanding and innovation and Fintech and even distributive platforms more broadly. Like you said, we started before SPACs were cool. So so the birth of the platform was really back in 2015. Uh, we launched the first fintech-focused SPAC. I think at that time, you know, Betsy and Daniel had saw an opportunity to use SPACs as a way to accelerate growth in fintech companies that had spent the past you know, five to seven years maturing and scaling and needed an infusion of capital to take their business to the next level. Uh, since then, we have launched... I want to say I've lost track of the number of SPACs, but uh, maybe close to 10 or more. Um, but I've also moved into venture investing. So we make fintech-focused venture investments, which gives us the ability to invest up and down the capital stack. We also really very recently have started broadening the scope of the sectors where we invest to include platforms that have a, an impact on a broader level. So making impact-focused investments. I'm pretty certain that most people in the audience are going to know about SPACs, but maybe give us a, a, a short crash course on SPACs and, and the difference between the uh, SPACs and IPOs. Sure. So SPACs and IPOs are, are both pathways to entering the public markets, to, to becoming a public company. An IPO is, is really a capital markets transaction where a company's working with an investment bank, as I'm sure most people know. Uh, a SPAC is a structure that at its core is really an M&A transaction. So a SPAC sponsor you know, raises funds into a public shell company, and then it finds an operating company to acquire. And once that transaction is agreed to, the existing SPAC and SPAC investors can either decide to leave their funds in the transaction or they can redeem their SPAC shares. And through that acquisition process, the company becomes a public company or the operating company becomes a public company. So, so 2020... In 2021, were were huge years for your product for for SPACs, um, and and I, I kind of want to talk about that. But uh, maybe tell us about what you learned doing this before the boom of 2020 and 2021, uh, and then during and kind of what changed and how how did the market evolve? Sure. So I think before the boom. It's not really a new lesson, but maybe more a reinforcement of the traditional, you know, don't quit when the going gets tough. Uh, 
back in 2015, 2016, no one had heard of SPACs. You could walk into a meeting, you need to spell SPAC. Uh, companies really questioned whether the structure had real validity. So you spent a ton of time explaining the structure and the process to people, getting their buy-in on the benefits of going public via a SPAC. I think we spent probably months and months with different companies and stakeholders, educating them and forming relationships, even with those where there was probably a very, very small probability of success. Um, and months and months is a really long time when you have a limited life vehicle. But I think we really took the time to properly build out that foundation, as frustrating as it was. And we formed relationships with a really broad base of founders and companies and stakeholders in that process that really paid off in spades and allowed the business to flourish later on, especially as you know, SPACs came more to the, the, the forefront of, of what everyone was doing in the capital markets. And what, what drove that, uh, that mania? <laughs> it was a mania. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. I think it feels like there was a convergence of factors, kind of a chain reaction. SPACs had been around for decades, and then we came into 2020, and you have some of these buzzier names that de-SPACs. So you had companies like Virgin Galactic or DraftKings. Uh, these were names that had, I think, real retail appeal, and they got a lot of media attention, and they were successful deals. And then you were combining that with you saw a lot of large, established asset managers also launching SPACs. So that really provided some additional validation for the structure. And at the same time, there is a low or no interest rate environment that left funds more free to invest in SPAC deals. The market was generally up. Investors were showing this preference for the technology and growth and all of these things together. I think it really changed the complexion of the companies that were being de-SPAC'd. So you know, SPAC sponsors started looking at earlier stage, even pre-revenue companies. And it was really expanding the pool of companies that, that could potentially be public companies. Those had really great market conditions at that time. Uh, so many of these transactions were, were just wildly successful out of the gate. I think a lot of people saw SPACs as this really exciting and easy way to make you know, quick money. So you had celebrities launching SPACs and everyone everyone and their mother was launching a SPAC. Um, but I think now we've backtracked a bit. We have a really saturated market and probably too many SPACs out there. There aren't that many uh, companies that are ready to be public companies. There's definitely more SPACs than that. Um, and I think that combined probably with the current macro environment, it's put us into a bit of a period of a snapback now. So we're seeing a reset of the market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you've you kind of mentioned uh, some of the things I was going to say, how you know that mania also drove a lot of uh, mistakes and, and irresponsible SPACs. And I think there's no better person to ask, you know, what differentiates a good SPAC process, because you've definitely seen those, versus a bad one, which I suspect you've also seen that. <laughs> yes, I think we've seen one and the other and, and probably everything in between. You know, a SPAC process, it, it, I think it amalgamates so many different skills, and it's this, this chain of so many important tasks that all need to seamlessly happen. So you're looking at initial capital raises, identifying a target company, properly diligencing them and validating a business model, making sure they're public company ready, you know, raising more financing, finding the right investors, closing an M&A transaction. And then it, it, the process doesn't really stop there. You have to also kind of manage the post-closing company and the capital markets aspects of the deal. 
analyst relationships, PR strategy. It, it's really actually a very complex process. And I think a lot of people that enter the market underestimated the complexity. And I think the bandwidth, you really need to, to do these transactions um, properly. You know, in a good process, you really understand and manage all of these facets. And you, you pull them together and you end up with a public company, you've got a great fundamental investor base. You've got investor confidence in the company. So basically, they're meeting the projections they issued to the public. Good analyst coverage, it trades well. You've got good public float and active trading market. Um, and I don't think all of these things need to necessarily fall into place on day one after a transaction closes, but there are at least plans and and a pathway to checking all of these boxes and kind of a couple quarters post-closing. You know, on the flip side, there are probably a lot of inflection points where a SPAC process can go wrong. I think what we saw when the market got really saturated is that you know, SPAC sponsors were bidding up the, the valuations, the prices of these companies. They were really prioritizing doing any deal over a good deal. And in the same way, perhaps overlooking some of the aspects of public company readiness that you really need um, to to succeed and to inspire investor confidence. So not you know, either bringing pre-revenue companies that shouldn't be public companies to the public markets where they have to go through all of their growing pains in the public eye, which isn't ideal, um, or companies that, that, that didn't have the corporate infrastructure to really be prepared to put out financial projections to the investor and the analyst community and then couldn't meet those projections once they're out there. All of these things, I think, cause a bit of a spiral towards the, the, the negative media we're seeing seeing these days around SPACs. Is, is that frustrating to you, the fact that you've been doing this for such a long time um, and, and to see all of a sudden a lot of newcomers come in, not necessarily do things right, and then kind of, you know, maybe at least temporarily uh, ruin it for for those who are, you know, experienced? Oh, certainly. I think we <laughs> have been doing this you know, as a business. This hasn't been, these haven't been one-off transactions for us. I think a lot of people entered the market with more of a one-off transaction focus. And, you know, the bad reputation that SPACs now have is a result of a lot of those one-time entrants and not people that, that approach this as not only a business, but as, you know, a, a way to partner with companies to bring them to the public markets, not not with a transactional focus of of you know, earning a fee or, or kind of making money off of a transaction and then and then running and being done with the company. Um, it, it's frustrating. It makes transactions harder to do. But these types of things, I feel like they tend to be cyclical. Um, so it's probably something we've seen before. I think at some point the market's going to normalize. A lot of the entrants are already exiting, um, and we'll we'll get back to normal at some point. So I, I'm, I'm very proud of our audience composition because it, it involves a good number of entrepreneurs uh, across all stages. And so let's say I, I'm, a, I'm a founder listening right now, and you know I, at some point I, I do want to go public, but right now the IPO window is shut. Right? It's extremely, extremely hard to IPO. Uh, and I'm considering I have a, a SPAC alternative. Is this a, a real alternative right now? Maybe talk about you know how SPACs uh, can uh, provide a good alternative, particularly when when the IPO window is is closed. Sure. So 
know, the IPO window being closed, I think it, it's really a, a euphemism for, for poor market <laughs> conditions. So yeah. the time when it's hard to enter the, the public markets and SPACs, SPAC transactions, uh, if IPOs are difficult, SPAC transactions are also going to be difficult. But there are aspects of SPACs that give them a bit more flexibility uh, than IPOs. I also think that you know, SPAC sponsors, are, especially experienced SPAC sponsors, you know, understand these structures and the complexity around these structures and, and think a little bit more outside of the box on how to execute a, a going public transaction in these types of market conditions, whereas an IPO is a, is a pretty cookie-cutter process. There's not a lot of flexibility in what you do. You know, so I think SPAC structures, you you can use different types of financing. Maybe you're combining a, you know, a preferred financing with your, your typical common stock raise that happens in an IPO or in a SPAC to give your public company investors some additional downside protections. Or there are structures that give investors almost something akin to kind of a put option or extending their decision-making process on on how they want to hold their investment that also gives them downside protection that would allow a company to go public now, even though the the market conditions are more difficult. I think there's also a broader investor pool. You know, sponsors often focus in a SPAC transaction on bringing in strategic investors leveraging commercial relationships or often providing a portion of the financing themselves enough to anchor a transaction or or, or um, provide some traction in the market and I think that that's an advantage that um, you don't you can't really use in an IPO and it sounds like um, you know being IPO or sorry being public markets ready is not just about the numbers of a company but it's also about their operational readiness. H how do you make sure that the companies you are working with are in fact ready? We spend a, a significant amount of time with the company's finance team and their CFO, you know, understanding their internal processes, their staffing, the experience that the, the members of their team have being public, understanding you know, how long it typically takes them to close their books. Can they meet the required deadlines? You know, do they have enough people on board? Who do they need to hire before they go public to really be able to, to have this all happen in, in a proper methodology? You know, we amongst our team have, uh, I think, a large majority or a significant majority, significant portion of our uh, team members have some public company experience from being public company CFOs, auditing public companies. I handled securities law um, when I was a lawyer in my past profession. So we all bring a really unique aspect of understanding public company readiness. Um, and we not only evaluate the the companies that we're looking at, but we, we partner with them so that in the months leading up to that SPAC transaction, that we can help them overcome you know, any hurdles that they have. Let's talk a little bit about management because uh, you, you've worked with some impressive entrepreneurs. So you, you've actually worked with and, and seen firsthand the, the qualities uh, of these great leaders. Um, maybe tell us a bit about, about that. You know, what do great company leaders have in common, the ones that you've worked with? There is a pretty wide range of abilities, I think, that make people successful leaders. But 
decision-making ability is one that, that comes to mind as something I, I see pretty consistently amongst um, people that I would think of as great leaders. I think these people, they're consistently making decisions early and quickly, and you know, they show conviction in the decisions they make, even if perhaps they, they don't have 100% conviction themselves or they don't have perfect information. I think it's a balance of, of thoughtfulness and um, the ability to make, to be decisive that that's really important. These people, they're not really letting themselves get kind of mired in the process of gathering information or unnecessary consens- consensus. So it, I guess in some ways it's really the ability to recognize that being wrong might be better than showing indecisiveness or being the bottleneck in a situation. And how about board management? That's a topic that's come up often uh, on this podcast, uh, both from operators and investors. You, you've been a part and you've seen great boards. Uh, maybe sh- if you could share a little bit about some of the best practices you've, you've experienced at boards. I, I, for board management, I think that communication is key. Uh, the primary one primary thing I've consistently seen across boards is that directors can be frustrated when they feel like they aren't getting enough information or the right kind of information. And you really also need to balance that with the fact that most directors are, are very busy. You don't want to over communicate and drown them in information. So I think having a, a process where you're soliciting feedback, both on a formal and an informal basis about the information they're receiving, what's helpful, um, what they think is missing, I, it is really important. And it helps both processes move seamlessly um, and also for the board members to feel like they have the you know, the right basis to make decisions. Um, you know, another... Another best practice that I think is important and is probably one that has been on the forefront of um, everyone's minds these days is both racial and, and gender diversity on boards. You know, this has been gender diversity, especially has been something of a, a hot topic for the past few years. I think there were some regulations for public companies that came out a few years ago that focused on adding at least one woman to each board. Back in 2018, um, around the time that these regulations were coming out, we decided to uh, launch the first public company that had an all-woman board. So we wanted to show people that it's not only possible to find one qualified woman to be on your board, but you can actually put together an entire board full of females, and and it's not that hard. I think what we saw in that process was that there was a real value there, that people were providing different perspectives and different networks for us to tap into in a way we weren't seeing on boards that included a just a smaller female contingent. So I think you know one takeaway we had from that is that while it can take additional time and effort to pull together a more diverse board, it's really worthwhile to think of racial and gender diversity at the board level as something where you should go beyond the minimum check the box requirements because it can really be truly additive for you. Yeah, and, and I mean, if someone's going to have credibility to talk about that, it's definitely you and FinTech Masala, because you are a, a female-led company, is that right? And founded. Yes, yes that is correct. So, you know, uh, Betsy and Daniel Cohen are our founders. Uh, Betsy is our, our chairwoman, and I am our CEO. So we, we are a, a female-led company. So we do try and know, in all of our practices really kind of embody this, this spirit of, of gender and racial diversity. 
Love it. Love it. Um, w one thing I wanted to ask you is, I know that you work with companies, not just from the US, but from around the world. Um, and, and I think it's testament to the strength of the US market that uh, a lot of these companies are choosing to, to list and, and go public here, right, in, in, in the US. Um, maybe talk about that and, you know, whether you, you have any concerns or how closely you follow other public markets around the world. Sure. So, you know, I think there is a really meaningful difference in the depth of the U.S. markets and many other foreign exchanges. So on foreign exchanges, I think when you have this lack of liquidity, it, it impacts trading prices. And then you often have public companies and especially somewhat smaller public companies that feel like their valuations aren't accurately reflected because there isn't an active trading market in, in their stock. Um, and I think we, we follow other markets. And one interesting trend we are seeing is that we have been speaking with companies that are listed on non-U.S. exchanges about moving over to U.S. exchanges for, for specifically these reasons. I think there are other, other reasons as well that, that non-U.S. companies can find it attractive to be listed on the U.S. markets. Sometimes there's a, a commercial aspect to it if the company is providing services in the U.S. So, you know, for instance, if you're providing you know, critical infrastructure services to, to U.S. financial institutions, there's a level of comfort um, in the institution's understanding that you have continued access to capital and really stability in that aspect of your business. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, there's, there's nothing like it. And And even, I, I won't go into any specific names, but there were examples last year, 2021, of, of companies that went public in, in the UK and, and kind of flopped. Um, so it was, it was interesting to watch. Uh, Amanda, any, any specific trends uh, within the fintech space or, or verticals that you are particularly excited about these days? Of course. Um... You know, it's, it's something I think everyone is probably buzzing about, but, you know, we think of embedded finance as the, the next major wave of technological in innovation. Um, it, I, I, I think many people probably know what embedded finance is, but essentially it's you know, selling financial products and services outside of a non-financial value chain. It's like a company, like an airline offering to sell travel insurance to a customer that's buying an airline ticket. Um, it's not a new concept. It's been around for a while, but I think with the rise of technological innovation, it's just made it easier, more scalable, and more customizable. It really feels like it's kind of fundamentally changing business models by allowing you know, non-bank fintech companies to replace banks and more traditional financial institutions as being the primary provider of financial services. There's also a really interesting, I think, ancillary effect in the impact investing space the, the embedded, the ease in which embedded finance allows uh, non-banks to provide financial services, it, it expands access to things like payments and banking and credit, mortgages, insurance. Um, so people that are, say, in emerging markets or the underbanked that might not have either efficient or affordable access to those types of services now can really participate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and, you know, this, this got me thinking... There's, as you mentioned, embedded finance has been 
around for a while, but there's also a, a wave, and I, I see it in, in my day job, there's a wave of new companies being started, um, specifically in embedded finance. I'm curious, how early are you engaging with companies? How early are you starting conversations? In terms of you know companies that we would potentially yeah yeah them. like no you know no 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 strings attached but like getting <laughs> to know each other as early you know as early as possible I think that part of the way we approach doing business it's really we really focus on relationships so I you know, we love meeting companies very early on understanding what they're doing seeing how they're growing. Um, we do do venture stage investing, so you know it doesn't only we don't only have the capability to invest in you know late stage companies that are ready to go to go public. Um, and I think you know, a lot of a lot of the investments we've made, whether in the SPAC space or the venture space, have been companies that we have known for many years. So so we we speak with with everyone as early as possible. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, and Amanda, before I let you go, um, if you could share. If someone comes to mind, who, who have been some of the most uh, helpful and consequential people in, in your career? I have been really lucky to have two great mentors in the fintech, Masala founders, you know, both Betsy and Daniel. I think they're they're brilliant. They're very actively involved in our business, and they, they do a really great job of challenging me. You know, I've mentioned that I transitioned from a legal career to being a, a business professional and, and managing a more entrepreneurial enterprise. That process it really required that I, I rethink how I how I perceive and tolerate risk and make decisions. You know, lawyers are pretty risk adverse typically. Entrepreneurs not so much. <laughs> um, so I think both Betsy and Daniel have have continuously nudged me out of my comfort zone, even as that comfort zone continues to expand. And one of the most probably impactful things that I've learned from them is that it's it's not only okay to be out of my comfort zone that's where you're supposed to be when you're you're building a business so you really need to be comfortable trying new things and understanding that some of them are going to fail and, and that's okay fascinating stuff well can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us amanda and you know excited to see uh how fintech massage will continue to evolve thanks miguel this has been fantastic thanks for having me thank you Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Amanda Abrams, CEO of Fintech Masala. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>